is a little bit of a yin and a yang, right? So it's, it, you feel that little bit of a pressure, a little bit of anxiety, go and get the deals and find them. But but at least in my mind, I feel more of the pressure of make sure it's the right deal, make sure it's a good financial deal that, that'll allow us to make those preferred return payments. What's going on, guys? This is the Passive Wealth Strategy Show. Thank you for tuning in. Today, our guests are Rudy Kirtler and Jason Graves from Sawgrass Capital Partners. Today, we're talking about mobile home park funds. Specifically, we get into the fund that Rudy, Jason, and their partners have started. You may recognize Jason's name from the past. He's been on the show before telling us about uh, all the apartments he was buying in the Midwest from California. He was doing a great job buying up all these apartments. But at some point there in the recent future, he decided to make a pivot and decided to get into mobile home park. Today, we talk about why he made that pivot and got out of apartments and got into mobile home parks. If you are a listener or a fan of the Bigger Pockets podcast, you may also recognize Rudy Kirtler's name. He's been on their show before as well to talk about mobile home park investing. So you may have heard him uh, there before. We get into some of the details here of how a mobile home park fund operates, how the return is generated, what the obligations are for the passive investors, what the benefits are, not just uh, from a cash flow and return standpoint, but from depreciation and all diversification, all of those other things. Uh, I think I see the fund model becoming more and more popular, uh, particularly late 2020, early 2021. It really seems to have increased in popularity. So something to keep an eye on. Additionally, mobile home parks as an investment uh, class and investment opportunity are only getting more and more popular. And we are, many investors are expecting to see more institutional money coming into the mobile home park space. So just something to keep an eye out for. Now is the time, right, for small investors to get in before the institutional guys get in, learn about mobile home parks. Maybe it's right for you, maybe it's not, but you can beat the institutional guys at the table. That's always a benefit. Like I said, we are talking about the mobile home park fund that these gentlemen have started. In the interest of disclosure, I am not an investor in that fund, I'm not at a partner. I'm just trying to learn alongside you and uh, pull out some important lessons. If you want to learn more about their fund, you can surely reach out to them. They give their uh, contact information at the end of the show. That's your business. I'm just trying to learn here right alongside you. And uh, I'm confident you're going to learn something today. I know I sure did. For those of you who are new to the show, I'm your host, Taylor Lote. I'm a real estate investor. I'm a real estate syndicator. I buy real estate with passive investors and split the return. Love learning new things. I don't have any fund or mobile home park investments. So I'm always probing, trying to trying to ask some important questions here, just in case I decide to go down that route someday. Who knows? We'll see. Thank you for tuning in. Without any further ado, here we go with Rudy and Jason. Jason and Rudy, thank you for joining us today. Absolutely. Thanks for having us. It's great to talk with you, uh, Jason. Just for the listeners out there, Jason's been on the show in the past, and we've talked with him before. This is a, our second two-guest episode on the show as well. Today, we're going to talk about mobile home park funds and the fund that you guys have going. Uh, Rudy, do you mind for our listeners, uh, since we're just meeting you for the first time, do you mind telling us a bit about yourself and your experience? 
Absolutely. Sure. Thank you, Taylor. So uh, I've been in the real estate space for about 14 years. And I started off like uh, I think a lot of real estate investors do just kind of real interested in, you know, what is this rental, you know, rental properties all about. And bought myself a, uh, with a partner, bought a single family rental that we converted from a two bedroom to four bedroom. And over the course of a couple of years, ended up acquiring six single family homes. And I realized that I was kind of running out of capital. And if I wanted a, uh, a way to diversify and actually, you know, get my capital to work a little bit harder for me, was, was kind of how I was looking at it and stumbled on mobile home park space, which we're going to talk about more, I think, today in this call. And, you know, ultimately the, you know, it, it, it's kind of one of these things where, man, I wish I'd known about the mobile home park space 20 years ago. And, but you know, as they say, you can't uh, you can't reverse that, and you can't change things. And so, you know, we've uh, we've enjoyed some some good fortune there. Most of my uh, most of my rentals are in eastern South Dakota, which is probably not the you know where everybody would flock to to go and buy their real estate, <laughs> you know, build their empire, empire, so to speak. But you know, we've had really good luck there. We found a niche market. We love it, and uh, we've got some built-in you know some advantages just because. We have a network there of family and friends and and contacts, and that has been uh, made a world of difference for us. Awesome! And mobile home parks have only gotten, in my opinion, uh, more popular here through the COVID pandemic and everything. With you know all the the new laws that are coming into place, and you know, Jason, uh, I want to you know pivot to you now. Last time you were on the show, you were buying up all of the apartments in the Midwest from your home in sunny California. Now you're in the mobile home park space and you've invested in some other things too here in the interim, but you know, why make the pivot? Why shift to mobile home parks? So, you know, in the last two and a half years, three years, we picked up about four to 500 units in, in Kansas city and, and that's all good and gone well, but what you, what I learned in doing this remotely and having professional property management in, in, in Kansas city, again, it, we're hitting our targets. There's a lot of work. But what kills me is that constant <clears throat> year after year turnover with the tenants. So when they move out, <clears throat> then you have to get the place ready. There's two or three months of, of finding a new tenant. I feel like I'm on this constant roller coaster, right? And my expense ratio is just going up. It's going up and up. So I met Rudy. You know, we, we partnered together on this first one. And I mean, from day one, we were able to control the expenses and get it under 30% on the mobile home park we bought. And our whole business model is to take the park-owned homes and sell them off to the tenants. So we own the pad, we own the dirt, and that the person that was renting now has opportunity to be a, a, a you know, our mission is to give people that have never had ownership before, but they own that house, right? So if anything it breaks or uh, you know needs to be repaired, they do it. It's not on my dime, it's on theirs. So that's a radical difference and what we end up being is really just the landlord of the dirt and the infrastructure, right? And and the, and it's really the bottom line is that the tenants will will be there for a long time, right? So they, they could be there for three years or thirteen years, rather than this constant turn. So, gotcha. Okay, and I want to make sure that we also address the the fund model and you know what that means for you as the operators and for your passive investors out there because yeah. we've uh, just in other episodes on the show we've addressed 
syndication as a way to buy mobile home parks. We've addressed JVs. We've addressed going and buying them yourself. But as far as I can recall, not the fund model. Can you tell us, uh, and I'll just throw it out there for whichever you guys wants to take this question, but uh, you know, why the fund model? What does that um, offer? What are you know benefits, all that stuff? So we've done seven syndications in the last two, three years. So it's always, you, know, you find a deal, you underwrite the deal, you get it under contract. You then figure out how much money, let's say half a million, million, million five. And then on the back end, you're under the clock to go raise that capital. Highly stressful. It's no matter how many partners you have, you always need more money. Then you fund, and then there's people that actually can't get into the deal. So once you're funded, you have five, 10 people that want to get into the deal. So it's this constant, again, roller coaster. I just hate it. So Rudy and I talked about it. I, I interviewed two or three people that had, had done funds before. We started the legal process and I don't know, we started that six months ago. So we got an SEC attorney, uh, spent the money, understood the process, again, did the interviews. So the idea with the fund is simply you set up the fund, which we've done now as of two weeks ago. And now we have a mechanism. Investors can sign a subscription agreement and put in 25K or 50K or 100K and get eight, nine, 10% preferred returns uh, um, every 90 days, right? And then they're just, they're, they're putting, they're committing to that $3 million fund, right? So it is a blind leap of faith because it's not tied to a deal. It's tied to a part, a team of people that have, you know, a track record of executing and, and, and a, a given you know plan to, to do what they say they're going to do. So that's the main difference, right? Cause it's not one specific deal. Yeah. Yeah, you know, absolutely. And if I can add on to that too. Yeah. And I think, I think really good. Good description, Jason. And I think the other advantage from the partner standpoint is we have better leverage going into the negotiation with the seller as well, because now we can walk in and say, essentially, we're a cash buyer in a situation where as before, to Jason's point, if you hadn't pre-raised the money and you didn't already have it because the deal wasn't under contract, now you actually have better leverage walking in. So there's another advantage. Yeah, it's an interesting point uh, that you bring up now. Um... Jason, you mentioned kind of the the leap of faith, right? And I, I, if I'm playing devil's advocate here a little bit, you know, as an operator or as a somebody going out and finding deals, you, know, you get all the capital raised, and then you got to go place it, right? How is I guess what's the counterpoint to saying, okay, now I got cash burning a hole in my pocket, so I need to go do a deal as a potential way to is there a risk in like being too pressured to to go do the wrong deal just since you you have the cash you got to go do something with it does that make sense you know it does you want to take a read or sure i can yeah i think i think that's funny you bring that up because it's that's um very definitely a part of the mindset right well hey now i'm i'm on on the clock in a different way so the investors are expecting a return let's go get it yep exactly and so but ultimately the, you know, the responsibility lies in the underwriting and, and the ability to get the preferred return paid out is going to be contingent on the underwriting done correctly and thoroughly. And so it is a little bit of a yin and a yang, right? So it's, it, you feel that a little bit of a pressure, a little bit of anxiety, go and get the deals and find them. But, but at least in my mind, I feel full more of the pressure of make sure it's the right deal, make sure it's a good financial deal that, that'll allow us to make those preferred return payments. And, and beyond. 
And in the last 120 days, in the last four months, Rudy and I have underwritten over 100 deals. So we have a deal flow. We've been under contract. We walked from deals. We just launched a fund you know, 10 days ago. And didn't we get a, a deal under contract literally today? Uh, yeah, actually this so, morning. So yeah. This morning, right? So, um, and that was what? Um, 70 pads for 700K? Yeah, well, we have so we have two parks. Yep, seventy-seven pads, and so between the two, I'm going to be uh, a million four. Mm-hmm. So seven hundred each. Think of it that way. So I guess my point is, we were had a bunch of activity prior to the launch of the fund to have the pipeline, and again, literally underwriting over hundred deals and having things under contract that we walk from. Right, and, and we're not under the clock. To your point, we wrote something into the contract in the subscription agreement. If we don't execute in 12 months, the investors would get 100% of their money back. So there, there's an exit clause without penalty if, you know, because we're not going to do a bad deal, right? But for two weeks, we have two parks under contract. So I've been asked this uh, as a follow-up, right? If you're, if you end up just holding on to the cash, right? I've been asked this question uh, by investors in the past is, okay, with that money is just sitting in a bank account, interest rates are basically nothing anyway, but is it an interest-bearing account? Is that interest paid out to the investors? What happens? Or is it just, hey, you know, we didn't go do anything. Here's your money back. What does that look like? We actually did different. So they don't they keep their money on their side of the fence okay. until we get under contract. And then we do a capital call. And then they wire it over. Gotcha. Gotcha. Okay. So from your, your side of the fence, um, what if, hypothetically, from the operator standpoint, what if not enough people come through? What's your what's your risk there, and how have you mitigated that? Pretty. I mean, okay. it's, 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 so there's there's a, there's a fifteen percent uh, legal clause in the contract. So if someone you know committed hundred grand and they didn't uh, execute, there would be a fifteen percent liability legally for them not moving forward. That's the first one. Um, you know, it's. <laughs> we haven't crossed that bridge yet and I'm laughing because, you know, it, it's, but I, you know, it, most of the people that are, have invested, invested in multiple buildings with us, multiple parks with us. It's long relationships. That's never happened. Well, that's the, a, that would be bank. a good way for a passive investor to burn a relationship. Right. For, it seems right. For sure. Yeah. yeah. It, and I think it, it makes some, you know, a lot of sense for them to keep the cash on their side of the fence and, and, you know, keep it in their account that's doing, you know, working for them. And so the way we work it is based on each deal, um, that percentage of that 3 million will be called based on what we need. And so even the capital call may not necessarily be the full commitment. So let's use an example. Let's say somebody says, Hey, I'm in for a hundred grand. I signed a subscription agreement, which is their their uh, capital contribution or the capital commitment at that point, which is a signed document. And then, in hypothetically, let's say we only need a million of that three million on in order to close these two deals we're talking about. Okay, great. So that's one third of their commitment. So we take one third of that hundred thousand that they committed. That's the capital call. So there's sixty six thousand and change is still in their other accounts, earning their return. There are 33,000 and change is put to work in this mobile home park fund now is starting to generate its own return. So, I mean, obviously I've, uh, I was sent the uh, fund, you know, uh, offering documents here and I'm uh, taking a look at them. And uh, Rudy, you mentioned before about uh, South Dakota. And one of the things that strikes me about the Dakotas now, this was over a decade ago, right? When oil was $120 a barrel, 
one of the words uh, sayings about the Dakotas is that when oil cratered, the uh, Dakotas real estate market cratered as well. Oil is significantly cheaper today than it was then. So we're in a different market. But you know, obviously, you've had this question before. How do you address the any concerns about from you know Jason's investors? Many of them, I'm sure, are in California, and the, yep. investing in the Dakotas to them is like uh, yep. maybe crazy. I don't know. Yeah, is there a boom and bust area or something? Right. I don't so, know. And, and you're spot on. I think there are definitely areas that we um, are, are purposely trying to stay away from. So we are leery of the kind of the Western North Dakota, which is really where the Bakken oil fields are. And you've kind of seen all the shale oil, um, um, up there. And when, when times are good, it can be great for mobile home park operators up there. But, uh, in the last year and a half or year or whatever it's been, it's been very, um, challenging. The good news is we're not in the Western North Dakota part. So we're kind of, we're about, I don't know what it is, probably 400 miles away from there. So we actually feel pretty good that we're, we're not tied to that industry. We're in a, we're in a bit of a better pocket where um, the area we are is north of Sioux Falls, between Sioux Falls and Fargo, if you can visualize kind of where that area is. And it's just been, um, you know, booming in a lot of different ways. One of the things we've seen tremendous advantage for our, our rental properties has been, there's a lot of wind generator building that's gone out there. And so a lot of renewable energies that's not tied to the oil is actually almost the polar opposite, right? So, and we're seeing some tremendous advantage. And in fact, one of our strategies in this park that we bought this year was for any of the vacant pads that we had, we actually um, looked for long-term RV site rentals for construction workers that were in the area for months on end. And that's been very lucrative for us. And, and there's some seasonality to it. So there's ups and downs, but we've been very happy with what we've seen. So great question. We're fortunate that we've kind of stayed away from some of those really boom and bust cycles and uh, we're in a pretty good spot. But that park had 40 pads when we bought it. We then, we had, we had like 20 RV parking to get the, the revenue from the RV parking. It has a laundry mat that's kicking off hundred grand in cash. We bring in storage, that we're adding storage you know, for, for people there. And then what's cool, again, we are in the spring going to be infilling more and more and more, uh, you know, houses. So it will go from a 40 plex to a 50 to 60 to 70, all the way up to 80. In nine months, Rudy and his team, we bought the park, fast forward a year and went back to the bank, refinanced and was able to pay back all of the capital investors, all limited partners got hundred percent of their money back. So you put in a hundred grand, you got 10% preferred return over the year. So you have 10 grand in your pocket, you get your 100K back. So in the po- our pockets, 110, 110K, here's the kicker. No ownership got diluted. So perpetual passive income for life between 12 and 18, 20%. That's crazy. And that's, that, that's what gets me excited. I mean, tell me that those 15 people that's got all their money back aren't putting money into our fund because it's the same money. In nine months, I mean, I've never even heard of investment that that quick. So that, you know, they were able to to add that much value, and we haven't even started bringing in houses yet. So and that brings up uh, an important point that I want to make sure we address is exit strategy, right? Not just your exit strategy um, for selling off your parks, you know, whenever you do, but what does that mean for the investors who invest in the fund when you do a capital call because you, you know bought XYZ park, 
Okay. And then in a couple of years, when you sell XYZ park, the, does a fund keep those uh, proceeds that distributed to the investor? Um, how does that whole thing? Yeah, those. So on a the way it's framed up is on a liquidating distribution. So that means when you sell a park um, or an asset inside the fund, then uh, on a prorated basis, those funds would then get returned back to the investor, depending on whether the capital accounts are paid off or not. So if the initial $3 million in capital um, has been already paid off, then those are then just gains at that point. If the capital accounts have not been paid off, then whatever gain from that particular sale of that particular park then would be used to pay down the capital accounts for the investors on a, on a prorated basis. So to simplify it, for, for a refinance or a sale, all of those proceeds go back to the limited partners first to pay back their capital. That's our primary mission, right? And then there'll be parks just that, that will want to keep it going, you know, that are cash flowing, same exact scenario, you know, we've added value and we just want to hold on to them. I, I had a, you know, I went to, to lunch with um, Frank Rolf and Frank is, you know, yeah, I am right. So, but he, you know, he, he's got 20,000 pads and he, he said that and he's the fourth largest mobile park guy in the, in the country. You have a three to seven year window and this is his words, not mine of, of before wall street, and hedge fund money starts buying parks. And that's our target. And, and Rudy and I felt this. I mean, this thing has accelerated dramatically in the last, in last six months. It's already happening. So cap rates are getting compressed. So we're, you know, active. Yeah, that's a, so I, I just throw that out there. That's definitely an exit strategy because we'll have enough parks built up that we can do what Frank did and then sell them as a portfolio to somebody. Making hay while the sun shines. Now, um, Speaking of proceeds and and all of those things, um, a question that commonly comes up for passive investors and a priority, and we talked about this before we hit record, so I know you guys know the answer to this one, but I want to make sure the listeners find out, is uh, depreciation and passing on uh, depreciation and using cost segregation and all that stuff uh, to pass a paper loss to investors for the tax benefit. What does that look like for a mobile home park fund? Because say land is not depreciable, whereas in multifamily, you know, most of the values in the in the building, not so much in the land. So what can you do as uh, mobile home park investors for, you know, depreciation and cost seg and all that? Sure. Yeah, I'll take that one. The what's what's um, good about the mobile home park space is the uh, capital. The infrastructure, utility infrastructure, you know, stuff that's underground, you can actually depreciate, um, you know, depending on the park. Um, not every park is 100% tenant-owned homes. You know, there's a number of still, you know, park-owned homes that are in a lot of parks. Uh, mm -hmm. Those become depreciable. Um, you know, any other improvements that you might do could become depreciable. Um, and then, you know, in our example that, you know, Jason's mentioned with the laundromat, of that equipment, that building is all depreciable too. So there is uh, um, a significant tax advantage in that regard. So I use the same cost segregation guy that's done all my apartment buildings and he's cool. I mean, he'll actually fly out. He'll run a drone over the property. He'll work with the city. Then he just gives you back the, the report and then you sign that off to your accountant. And then we give a K-1 back to our investors and then they write off their percentage off their taxes. And it, it's a, so... 
I hesitate to give me exact numbers, but I got a six figure tax refund this year. That's awesome. crazy. <laughs> and, and that's, that's, I mean, in the last 90 days, I just from three buildings, I got back over a hundred grand in taxes because of cost segregation. It's awesome. I love it. Well, right now we're going to take a quick break for our sponsor. All right, guys, I've got three questions. I ask every guest on the show, Jason, you know, these questions. Are you ready? I'm ready. All right. We'll start with Rudy. Jason, if you have different answers this time around, you're more than welcome to chime in. First off, what is the best investment you ever made other than in your education? Best investment I ever made, ever made. I was thinking strictly real estate when we first when you first asked that question, but I would say best investment I ever made was buying Best Buy stock back in the late 1990s. Here's why, because um, it almost became the worst investment I ever made, which I know is your next question. But <laughs> I, I started kind of squirreling some money away in my 401k and actually had a had you know stock had gone from like four dollars a share up to like 16. I was thinking, oh my God, I quadrupled my money. Keep in mind, this is you know back in the 90s, I was still pretty young in in what band years. And, I was thinking, man, I just quadrupled my money. I feel really good about it. I probably went from a thousand to four thousand bucks, you know, something, something like that, right? And I made an attempt to actually cash out and, you know, kind of, hey, I want to, I want to take my earnings and I'm good. Well, for some reason, that that transaction never went through, and and all my money was riding. Well, what I didn't know is that was the beginning of a two thousand percent growth spurt of Best Buy stock. At that point, and I ended up becoming six figures in my 401k, and I almost clicked out and sold it. <laughs> that was the best best investment I ever made. Nice, Jason. You want to take a swing at that ball? It's the new one I told you about. It's literally the investing with Rudy and his team, and I, it, you know that's only a year ago. I've I've never invested and gotten my principal back that quickly, and that was it. That's why I'm partners with him. Nice. I love it. Well, we had the best investment. Now we go to the worst investment. What is the worst investment you ever made, Mr. Uh, I'll take it. It's uh, I'll take the first crack. Um, the worst one, we, I'm going to say we, because this is a partner and I made it. Um, and, and it depends on how you define worst investment, because I think there's still lessons to be learned, even in bad investments. And the worst one we made was we bought a, a small mobile home park I was about 90 minutes away from us. We didn't have you know, people on the ground that, that we knew. We didn't have any kind of network there. We didn't, um, we hadn't fully thought out our strategy on that park and what we were going to do with it. And it ended up being two years worth of headaches and, you know, early morning Saturdays to late night Saturdays, driving down to that park, doing some work, coming home. And it just ended up, you know, pardon my French, but it was a massive pain in the ass is what it was. <laughs> and it's just, you know, we, we started making some money on it and, and ultimately there's a ton of lessons that we learned, but it was just, it was painful while we were in it. And, and so from that regard, I would say it was probably the worst investment in that regard. Okay. Well, Jason, I hope you don't have a new worst investment for us. It hasn't been that long since we talked, but do you want to uh, tell us your worst investment you ever made? So I bought, a, I bought a condo in 2005 in Vegas and it was an emotional decision to bail out a family member. And, and I did it because again, it was a, a, I was trying to be helpful and in retrospect, I shouldn't have stepped in and they would have learned a lot more lessons, just go and go to foreclosure and um, 
getting, you know, experience that for themselves. So financially, it was, you know, bad for me. You know, I lost 60 to 80 grand. I actually did a short sale. So I went through the whole process of what that is and that whole thing. Um, but that's the only time I've ever actually ever lost any money in real estate was that one deal. Good. Um, I, I remember that one from last time. So I'm glad. Same one. I, yeah, yeah. I'm glad you don't have a new worst in no, I don't for have, us. That's it. <laughs> My favorite question here at the end of the show is what is the most important lesson you've learned in business and investing? My most important lesson is um, almost everything is fixable, meaning almost every problem has a solution. And there's it's it's a question of which what level of persistence you want to put behind figuring out the answer to that problem. And it's, it's how many questions you want to ask, who's done this before? Is there, you know, can you find the people or person that's done whatever, you know, found the solution to whatever problem you think you're having? Most problems are not fatal. You know, even if you lost all your money and you still have probably what's most important to you is your, you know, between your two years, right? And go use that and put it back to work and get yourself going again. Most problems have a solution. That, that's probably the biggest thing I've learned. Nice. I love it. Jason? Mine would be, it, it's, you know, it's a team sport, right? So there's, you can try to do it on your own and you can be successful on your own, but if you can reach out and leverage uh, subject matter experts that know what they're doing in different areas, you can run a lot faster together than you can on your own. Awesome. That's so important, uh, especially in real estate. It's such a people business that you don't, maybe at least I didn't appreciate it, you know, certainly not before I got into it. And, you know, it's demonstrated more and more every day. Thanks for joining us today, guys. If folks want to get in touch with you, if they want to learn more about your mobile home park fund, where can they find you? Man, the easiest one is just go see which direction I'm pointing at. You can see it here, sawgrasscapitalpartners.com. Find it on our website. You can actually find the whole, uh, you know, one of our recordings talking about the investment itself, you can find the PPM there, subscription agreement, and you can reach out and uh, schedule a call with me or any of the other uh, principals, and uh, we'll get back to you as soon as we can. All right, good deal. Jason, anything to add before we sign off here? Uh, uh, no, just uh, thanks again for having us on your show, today. We appreciate uh, it. Thanks for coming back. It's great to talk with you again, Rudy. It's great to uh, get to meet you here. To everybody out there, thank you for tuning in. If you're enjoying the show, please leave us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. It's very much appreciated and it helps other people learn about the show. If you know anyone who could use a little bit more passive wealth in their lives, please share the show with them and bring them into the tribe. We are now live streaming our interviews on YouTube. So if you'd like to join us, look up Passive Wealth Strategies on YouTube. Hit the subscribe and notification bell and all that good stuff. And we will see you there joining the conversation. I hope you have a great rest of your day and a great week. And we will talk to you on the next one. Bye-bye.